Well, a number of years ago, I was hired to work at a Christian conference. It was a, a conference being held by a, a major Christian publisher at the time. And before you get too excited, I'm using the word hired here loosely. The compensation for it was more of a trade. Uh, if I would come down and work for a week, they would pay for my housing, my food, and a few modest perks. Some guys will do anything to get into a conference, and that's, that's what I did. And don't fancy me as any kind of national speaker. Uh, I was hired to run a spotlight. <laughs> never in my life, never in my life have I ever to that point run a spotlight. Ever since that point, never have I ever run a spotlight. <laughs> but myself and the fellow rookie spotlight operators uh, there that day must have showed some promise in our work because our supervisor continued to challenge us with more and more advanced techniques. He wanted to try stuff out at different points. Now I, I should add here, this wasn't just the spotlight on like the speaker who's at a podium just standing there and you just kind of shine a light on him. We had to do spotlight for like concerts and stuff, so people running around. And in fact, there was one moment where a guy jumped on top of a grand piano. You had to keep the spotlight on him, so it's like going all over the place. So we showed some promise, but with that advanced techniques came one particular occasion, and this will kind of date it. If you're familiar with Christian music, uh, Margaret Becker was in concert at one point. Um, and so she was seated on a stool, and the, the, we get it in our ears through the little microphone sound thing. The guy says, hey, shine your light on her face. Now tighten your beam so it's just on her face and there's no light bleed over onto the back wall. So her face is lit up like an angel. And we had two spotlights crossing right on her face. And for a brief moment there in time, Margaret Becker had the face of a cherubim <laughs> because of that handy spotlight work. Well, today's gospel reading shines such a light on Jesus. Not just on his face, not just illuminating like an angel per se. Uh, it's an episode in which uh, we find an interaction where Jesus and John talk about something that's not captured in the other Gospels. So it's a spotlight. It's going to shine down on a very specific encounter and a very specific event. And like, like a skilled spotlight operator, our writer here in Matthew is going to hone that light and is going to sharpen its beam so that the readers might know exactly who Jesus is, but will also know what God is up to. Not only because it's important to the story that's going to be told in Matthew's gospel, but even more so because it's important to the story that's being written in our lives, then, now, and in the future. Of course, before we get to all that spotlight and shining and whatnot, uh, there's a question that comes up. We'll call it the Christological question. If you don't like that word, we'll say the theological question. But it's got to have logical at the end of it. But we have a question that comes right off the go. Why would Jesus need to be baptized? What's that all about? Why is he showing up at this baptism? Early in the chapter, we read that John's message is a call for repentance. And so consistent with the message, John will announce in verse 2 of the chapter, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. To which people, of course, will respond. And we hear in verses 5 and 6 that Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan. And there's this little note here, confessing their sins. That last part is important. Confessing their sins. Jesus, who liked the crowds before him, enters the scene in, in verse 13 to be baptized by John. 
But what would Jesus be confessing at this point? The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he says, For our sake God made the one who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The writer in Hebrews chapter 14, verse 15 will say, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. Both have Jesus in view. Both these writers are thinking about Jesus as they write those things. So why would Jesus be responding to John's call here for repentance, for confessing sins, and ultimately for forgiveness? Well, our writer at this point must have thought, people are going to ask that question in the future. People are going to wonder that as they read the story about Jesus, and I should probably clear that up for them with a little encounter that's happening here. And so we see this, this exchange that we might say, using our spotlight illustration, is the light's now skillfully trained at that point on that exchange between John and Jesus. We see that in verses 14 and 15. The encounter, of course, is the one that the author uses to explain the why here. And the keen reader of this gospel might also observe that John's baptism in Matthew is identified with repentance and in verse 6, confession, but does not include reference to forgiveness of sins as we find in Mark and Luke's telling of the story. The writer wants us to have something else in view when we hear and we read Jesus' baptism. Now, let me give you a little warning here. Have you seen National Treasure? How many people have seen the National Treasure movies? Right, a few of you? Some of you might be looking for symbols right now in this sermon. You'll, know, you'll remember that at one point they had these kind of funky glasses. I think they were created, were there Ben Franklin, I think, created them or something? They had little lenses that you could do. And if you put them on and you looked at the Declaration of Independence, or at least the back of it, you would see some sort of secret code that was on the back there. Well, here's your national treasure warning this, this morning. You're not going to need that here because the writer is going to come right out and say what God is up to and use different kinds of words. But for us today as moderns, as we hear this stuff, we might go, wait, I'd never heard that before. Or, wow, I, I don't think about those words in that way. Again, you're not going to need the National Treasure glasses to be able to see this stuff. But look what the writer writes in verse 15. Jesus says to John, let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. And that answer satisfies John. John hears that answer and he's like, oh, okay. Right? He's, he's like, no, I'm not going to do it. Blah, 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 blah. Fulfill all righteousness. Oh, okay. And then he does it. And the answer here, of course, for us as modern readers, we're like, what does that mean? What are you talking about? Well, you want to note two key words here that are employed by Jesus. And these two words are prominent in Matthew's gospel. The first one is fulfill. And it's oftentimes associated, when we talk about this word fulfill, and I say oftentimes, I mean every time, it's associated with Jesus' relationship to the Old Testament. How Jesus is what the Old Testament is pointing to. How Jesus is following the patterns of the Old, Old Testament. Admittedly, this all might feel like a lot to draw on one word and say, well, okay, come on, Jimmy. You took one word, and you're saying that's what that means? How do I know it doesn't mean something else? Well, before you go there, if you go into Jesus' message in the Sermon on the Mount... Only just a few chapters later. When the question about abolishing the law and the prophets is addressed by Jesus, how does he answer? I have come not to abolish, but to, and there's that word, fulfill. 
But not just there. The word is used 15 times in Matthew's gospel. Fulfill will be used 15 times in the gospel. And the other 14 occurrences, aside from our own text, directly connect Jesus with the Old Testament. So that's where we get that from. It's a prominent word in Matthew's gospel, and it connects Jesus each and every time to the Old Testament. This is what God is up to and what's being revealed through the prophets in the Old Testament. And here we are. Jesus is going to fulfill that in some way here in this moment and going forward. The second word, though, that we want to hone our attention on, the spotlight shows to us, is the word righteousness. A word that carries a wider scope and range of meaning than we might oftentimes imagine. If you're like me, your first reading of this, you see righteousness, fulfill all righteousness, and immediately my mind goes to being good, doing the right thing, some sort of moral objective that's been achieved. We might say good or moral behavior. But Matthew here is going to draw on, again, a wider range of meaning here. He's going to draw on this, this picture of the relational dimension of this word. That being righteousness is a relation to and with God that is focused in obedience. The commentator R.T. France, actually, at this point, will identify Matthew's use of this word as being a synonym for the Christian life. So if you think about what it means to be living the Christian life, to live the way of Jesus, righteousness serves as a synonym uh, for that. And indeed, we see this take shape in Matthew 21, in verse 32, where we read, For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even after you saw it, you did not change your minds and believe him. What is it that they saw? They saw people's lives being transformed and changed. They saw people living into a new relationship that was then modeled into aspects of behavior. It changed every aspect of who they were, how they thought, how they lived, how they even saw their futures. Those who believed took on lives that were in accordance with God's purposes and designs and with God's will. So Jesus here isn't being baptized for the remission of his sins. Rather, there's a kind of coming of age that we have here in this story. It's not a literal coming of age. Jesus clearly knows who he is. But there's a coming age here that's appropriate when you think about his vocational calling. You think about the first couple chapters of Matthew, and we know those closely because we just talked about them in Christmas. We sang about them. We use the words that show up there and the stories and the accounts. And here's this one who has come to save people from their sins. This one who is God with us, Emmanuel. And you hear those stories and you think Christmas time, Jesus is a baby, and those stories are circling around his life. The people around him are all abuzz about these things. But here he is as an adult. And at this moment, and this is where the coming of age comes, Jesus steps forward, placing himself in league with the gathered people of God, placing himself within the will that God has set before him, that vocational calling that he indeed will embrace and be that one who fulfills the Old Testament promises. Jesus goes public at this point in ways, and he says, here we go. It's go time. All the stories, everything you heard about me as a kid, now here I'm as an adult. I'm stepping out. It's time to go. There's a pattern of faithfulness here. It's a pattern when I was reading this story and thinking about it throughout the week. I was taken back to my own thoughts about Jesus and, and, and Jesus' own life. And I had, to, I had to move my mind to places where I said, this is the part where we, we juggle Jesus' divinity 
and his calling and his vocation, but at the same time, his humanity is on full display. And you think about in our own lives, there's probably a place in your life where there's a story where you made a pivotal decision, something that was a moment in your life where you did this and it affected the next many years of your life. Maybe that was a job you took, and you said yes to that job and no to some others, and it led you down a career path. Or maybe it was a school that you went to, and that led you down a certain course. Or maybe you were just in a certain place at a certain time, and you met a certain someone, and they changed your life. We have those places in our life, and this is one of those moments in Jesus' own life. And that's what I mean about his humanity, to see that as he steps forward in this way, He's taking bold action. In my mind, I like to think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. There he is before the crucifixion. And he's challenged with that question of will he go through with it. He knows that things are going to go sideways in just a matter of minutes. That people are, going to, are out to get him. That this week in Jerusalem is ending as a train wreck. And he sees that all is going to be lost. And there's that moment, if you remember in the Garden... It's recorded in Matthew chapter 26, where he's praying. He says, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. And then he says, yet not what I want, but what you want. And that's the pattern of faithfulness. I think that's a one-off moment. But for Jesus, it wasn't a one-off moment. Because he makes that same decision at the baptism. He literally says at that moment, yet not what I want but what you want, because I'm going to enter into those waters and be marked with that vocation. Of course, in life, we can say that we're many things. We could dress up as a certain kind of character. I know in my school years, uh, we would see this, and I saw this in working in youth ministries, people trying on different identities, looking different looks. Maybe you're an athlete, you dress as an athlete. Maybe you're uh, going to be known as kind of a, a preppy type figure. You dress as a preppy type figure. But you take on these different types of identities, and we do it throughout life. We, we, we wear our hair certain ways. We tattoo our bodies certain ways. We wear certain fashion. We talk certain ways. And we identify with different groups. And here we have Jesus here assuming an identity, an identity that's been placed before him, the reason that he's here, the reason he's born. And with this embracing of who he is to be, we find here in the baptism not only Jesus' own claims that he's laying hold to, but validation of who he is. And we see this continual fulfilling of what the Old Testament promises were. Note what happens to Jesus when he comes out of the water. The heavens were open to him. That's a spiritual epiphany type language. That Jesus is suddenly uh, seeing the validation of who he is and what he's to be about. And that opening of heavens is also language that we hear at the outset of Ezekiel. Ezekiel the prophet's own call, who, I might add, was also beside a river. And he has this, this sense where the heavens are opened. We also see that the Spirit then descends, and following Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 2, the Spirit then descends with Ezekiel. But here he is, the Spirit comes upon him. It's promised that the Spirit would be on the Messiah in Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah 42, of course, being one of our lectionary texts, but also in Isaiah 11, and Isaiah 61. And like a dove, as the Spirit descends, that imagery is associated with creation. The Spirit hovering over the waters, and here Jesus is in the waters, and the Spirit descending over those waters. It's perhaps here a nod to Jesus' role in that new creation, and bringing that new creation about. 
And of course, the voice from the heavens. This is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. That seems like a kind word. That seems like a, a word of great affirmation. But it's more than that. It's part of that spotlight the writer is using here. A spotlight that's having us look closer at what Jesus is about. And commentators over the years have observed that these words draw on Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. And they address the Davidic king as God's own son. This is a messianic text. It's a nod to Jesus as Messiah. But we also see Isaiah 42, uh, verse 1, where God's spirit is upon God's chosen servant. To make no mistake here, as Isaiah will write, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So what do we do with all that? It's kind of cool, right? That's really cool. Wow, Jesus, man, that's impressive. He's exactly what was promised. Let's celebrate that. Is that all we do with that? Well, we take our nod from the early Christians, those earliest Christians like Peter, who in Acts chapter 10 is confronted with a difficult decision when you think about cultures and life and and how do you interact with those who are different from you. And Peter's confronted with the ultimate type thing of how do we bring in people that are not Jewish? How do we bring them into the fold? How do we deal with this group that's, that's clearly been outsiders from generation to generation that we've had challenges with when we think not only in our personal religious type commitments, but also geopolitical type things? How do we deal with these folks that God would be going after them, that God would go after the nations? Well, we read in Acts chapter 10 that Peter is speaking to the household of Cornelius. And as he's speaking to them and beginning in verse 34, he says, I truly understand that God shows no partiality. And that partiality part is important because we have to draw our attention again back to the context. The context is he's speaking to outsiders, to Gentiles. He says, God shows no partiality. But in every people, anyone who fears him and practices righteousness is acceptable to him. You know the message he sent to the people of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. And then Peter goes on to draw on the story. He draws on that gospel narrative. And what does he do? He appeals to this Jesus of Nazareth who is anointed by God. And he goes back to the baptism. He goes back to those waters and talks about the events that then follow that are now set in motion. As Jesus embraces that vocation and steps forward in a public way. And for Peter, and now for Cornelius and his household... What the message that's unfolding comes out is big time. The last verse, verse 43 of that section, Peter says, All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Of course, this is just the beginning. It also sets the stage for what we have known since Christmas. That Jesus, who in Matthew 1.21 is said to be the one who's given the name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So that salvation message is wrapped up in these baptism events and what's to follow. And so as we look at this, we might be looking for an example. We might be saying, well, what what type of examples can I draw in life from this? Well, note the first spotlight. Jesus said yes. When Jesus was confronted with that moment when he could step out and step into God's will and to say, it's time to go, it's go time here, Jesus says yes. 
And he models for us a model of discipleship, that sense of a long obedience in the same direction, to use Eugene Peterson's words there, that there's a lot of yeses along the way, a lot of yeses that we faithfully step into even when it becomes tough. You can just imagine, you put your name out there and you say, yes, I am indeed in the Messiah, knowing that you are going to step into those servant prophecies of Isaiah, which don't end well, that he says yes. But now the light shines on you and me. It shined on Jesus at that baptism and going forward, but now that light shines on us. And the question for us this morning is, will we say yes? Will we step towards and faithfully respond to God's call and God's light? Will we faithfully respond here in 2023 to God's gracious invitation? Will we, like Noah and his family, who are called by God to build a boat? Why would you build a boat? A very large boat, but yet faithfully respond. Will we, like Abraham and his family, who are called to go to a land of inheritance and be told that you will have generation upon generation that will be a blessing to all the world? And they go. Will we be like the prophets who are sent with a message to go and speak and proclaim even when that message is going to be unpopular and recede with threats and violence? Will we be like Jesus who faithfully responds to God's call and goes and faithfully serves and proclaims who lives into that vocation and now invites you and me to say yes as well? Will we say yes in our generation? Will we say yes in our time? Will we say yes today? May it be so for our generation this day and every day of our lives. Amen.